Welcome back to the Alexander Schmidt Podcast, episode 033, um, with Mr. Wesley Shantz, and I believe this is the sixth classical conversation we, uh, we've had on the show, and the fifth with you here now, Wes. Wonderful yeah. to have you. Yeah, well, this one, I mean, it's, it's going to be a little bit of a different one, right? I mean, it's like towards the end of our last uh, conversation last week, we started to touch on it, and I know it's something that you've been wanting to think through, and so... I mean, I don't know. Do you want to do you want to introduce the topic then? And right. So I guess it does go in line with the fact that it is President's Day today, and how I take that to mean is that it's a day um, like Lincoln's birthday, sort of tragedy, and um, how tragedy can befit, um, how tragedy can be a part of not only the life of a great person but the part of a great nation. And so we recently suffered. A tragedy um, just a few days ago. The, I believe it's the biggest mass shooting uh, on a school campus in history, even even superseding the Columbine massacre in uh, terms of and number of deaths. Nineteen dead or seventeen dead, I believe, fourteen injured. Um, numbers akin to those down in Florida by an armed gunman, and um, who had once been a student there, but had been expelled as well as from two other schools um and um well the reason i i sort of wanted to discuss this isn't simply because i'm a teacher and you're a teacher and this is a day on which we might well uh think about uh national tragedies but but also because the the psychologist carl jung and more recently the canadian psychologist jordan b peterson say that when something difficult or dark happens Precisely what you don't do is run from it and ignore it. What you have to do is you have to consider it. And so the question that arises when something like this happens, to which we so often get a dissatisfying answer or unsatisfying answer even, is uh, why? And so I don't know. Right. I, I just so often heard people say why and then shake their heads and then walk away. And so I, I figured part of the – part of the goal of this podcast is to think through difficult issues, both practical and abstract. And this is, I think a difficult issue in both spheres, because this is of course a deeply tragic practical thing that happened, but it, it's roots. Carl Jung would say, go down to hell. And so, so I thought that we might, we might want to consider the tragedy and again, keeping the Timaeus in mind and the idea of giving a likely account is the beginning of science, not the end, of course, um, right. just getting the conversation started. I thought it might be useful to consider this through the framework of Dante's consideration of exile and what it does to the psychology of an individual. Um, and of course, this is something that Dante um, compares himself to Christ in this way, because uh, Christ is a willing exile from heaven in his conception. And uh, he contrasts that with Lucifer, who is an unwilling exile. From heaven and the Miltonian Lucifer is also very similar. Um, and so, just a couple of facts about the young man who committed this shooting are that um, he had, he had grown up in an adopted household without a father, and so he was sort of an exile from the experience of the normal um, childhood that's prevalent in our culture: the uh, the mother and the father, and also the biological relationship. Um, mm -hmm. When that's severed, that those are that's an exile from two levels of normalcy. 
that many people experience. And I, I had a friend who was, and this is just anecdotal, but I had a friend growing up and I recall him. He said that there was another friend of ours whom he didn't like for many years, several years, because one of the first questions he ever asked to him was whether he was adopted or not. And when he found out he was adopted, he refused to play with him. And well, you know, that's even something that Andromache in the Iliad mentions as being a, a hateful fate for a son to go about without a father who is not there to beat away the, the boys who will make fun of him for not having a father. Yeah, but that's, and, I mean, that's very common also in our, in our society, you know, just kind of broadly. It's, uh, I, and it's, I agree. it's Telemachus's situation too at the start of the Odyssey. Right. And very, Orestes, who does quite a bit with it and, uh, you know, murders his father's slayer. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so I'm not trying to take autonomy of the will out of the situation at all, at all, sure. but simply illustrating that this person might have perceived himself as an exile and as an exile. As I, as I illustrated earlier, there are two ways to understand your position, either in the sort of Christ-like or Dante-esque way or in the Luciferian, Achillean manner. And so what, what are those two ways? Well, Dante well illustrates in his Sphere of Mercury in the Paradiso that if damage is done to you, and uh, so the Sphere of Mercury from which we get mercantile, uh, from which we get mercurial. It's the it's the sphere of determining fairness. So what's the value of your money? And can we trade with each other? And what do your words mean? And um, so he determines that if somebody does damage to you, you are, it is within the bounds of fairness for you to do damage back to them. However, he broaches the concern, when does it ever stop then? Because the moment you strike back at them, Boom, they again have, by the dictates of vengeance, the right to strike you back again. And so you can fight until you destroy each other, essentially, is, uh, is what he's saying. But he says, well, that, that was sort of the power of what Christ did, because imperfect beings put a perfect being to death, which means that it was an unforgivable act, no amount of asking for forgiveness or repenting could uh, make humans forgivable for that. And so the only way that humans could continue to exist in a forgiven or, or a sort of graced state, graced as in given something they do not deserve, would be if that being forgave them for doing something unforgivable. And that's what Dante says Christ did. And Dante also believes that that is what he is doing for Florence. He is forgiving them for their flaws because, of course, they could not understand him for what he is. And so he's still going to become the ultimate flower of their civilization. And so instead of resentfully burning away and burning in his tent like Achilles or burning in his hell like Milton's Lucifer, and in uh, hiding his his abilities away in a calypso like fashion, he he becomes all the better because of it. And I would say that's one way of dealing with exile, but um, that's not the way that it was dealt with here. Well, the um, the interesting thing, I mean, about the uh, the two, those are sort of the two extremes, right? Um, yeah. That you could pose you could pose as your response to 
a perceived uh, uh, problem or, or insult or, or exile, if you want to say. Um, sure. Right. And then the, the point at which they meet, right, is um, in, in terms of the images of, of uh, the Christian story is the cross, right? You have yes. the cross at this point um, of kind of final uh, encounter. And uh, I, I just found it really interesting that the kid's name is Cruz. Yes, that's, it's the word for cross. Um, so he's 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 carrying his cross. You know, he's sort of got this chip on his shoulder. Um, I think it's mm. uh, really. I mean, that's that's kind of sort of puts the the tingles on the back of my neck um, to think about. And and yeah, his his response was very close to what you might imagine as the extreme, right? Of of rebellion and uh, of of hate. Um, and I guess normally, you know, like you're saying, normally people will you know, make the effort uh, to, to talk about a tragedy like this. And, and it's common to hear the, the question why and head shaking happens. And, and, you know, you look down and you walk away. But, you know, the two kind of alternatives that usually get talked about are not Christ and Satan, but, but either, okay, so either there's like a problem that's related to mental illness, or there's a problem that's related to guns, or some combination of the two, right? It's right. Like, I mean, I think both of those are attempts at not allowing the shock of a traumatic event to alter one's view of what is happening at all, right? And then both sides, uh, well, two sides are then created, who then project each, their shadow onto the other, which means ranting baboon, essentially, is what <laughs> the status of the other side is. And this ranting baboon, which is subhuman in terms of intellect, means that they can't say anything intelligent enough for me to possibly want to listen to anything they say, and therefore I won't listen to anything they say. I'll only listen to the, the, the ranting baboons next to me who are yelling the exact same thing I'm yelling, which uh, often doesn't have much content but does involve some vitriol directed towards the other ranting baboons, which are the other side. And so it's like I just don't see much substance in that sort of conversation um it's looking at things at exactly the wrong level of analysis and it doesn't help at at all my understanding at least for um what to say to my own students uh right whom i have to tend to and uh i i don't know i don't know it just um i i I would say if i were to see the arguments i could address them individually but one one thing I would not want to do is to say that this was the result of a sick person and because of that was in some way determined by his condition, um, nor would I want to say that this was um, the result of the social circumstance of an individual um, because precisely both those arguments, the sort of argument um, from, from uh, mental instability or the argument from social circumstance – well, what, what that obviates is the most important thing that makes a person uh, a, a citizen, which is the individual element. And what is the individual element? Well, that's the capacity to make a decision, to make a choice. And so the problem with those two views is that they suggest that the circumstance makes the decision. But, but the problem with that is that that's self-refuting because obviously everybody in those same circumstances do, do not behave in those same ways. And, and right. so somebody could say, well, his circumstances were unique. And I would say, well, then you can't apply a theory to explain <laughs> them. <laughs> um, because what you're, of course, looking for in a theory is what's 
common to the situation when you ascribe a mental illness or social circumstance, then you would suggest, then the suggestion therefore would be that more people with those circumstances would commit such crimes. And, and, and unfortunately, we would, if that were true, we would certainly take action to limit that from happening. And, but it's not true. So we don't. And so yeah. what is true is that we punish the individual. And why? Because they make an evil decision. And that's what we have so much trouble dealing with because this sort of thing indicates the presence of malevolence in our world. Mm -hmm. So something that we don't want to want to confront, right? Is that it's really something that's inside of every one of us, right? It's like, well, see, that's the problem. That's the problem. If that's exactly the problem, instead of us just being able to stick up our noses and say, because this person has a condition, which is not a condition that we have, we don't have to worry about it. Wrong. Precisely wrong. Uh, You just have to listen to some Eminem from like 15 years ago. Uh, talking about how he's every mother's nightmare because he's the potential within all their children. Um, He seemed to get it. The problem is that if malevolence is in one of us, it is in all of us, which means what? That we can only rely on each other because we have to trust each other because we're all constantly making the decision to or not worse. And a situation like this shows, dang, it's really easy to make things worse. And it's like, yes, yes, it it is. Of course, of course, of course. So then it's it's all the more incumbent on you to to you know make the effort, as you say, and and strengthen your kind of will and determination. Um, Yeah, and your character, because apparently you are going to have to run into. Darth Mauls in this world and, uh, and you know, Achilleuses and people who are possessed by evil thinking or have decided to make uh, choices that have led them down paths, which make them make them enemies to good and true things. Yeah. And that, and those are people. It's a long one too. Right. Well, so yeah, it's like their, their, uh, their identity the people who who wind up um, bringing a gun to school, trying to cause a, um, a shooting or, or succeeding in doing so, right? There, that, there's a long path of, of choices that, that leads up to that. And right. there's not a lot of people that sort of, you know, intervene at some point to prevent many other people from going down that path. Right. Um, and, you know, and, you know, see... And there, see, there's another problem I would say with the narrative, and I think you put it well, is that we do tend to be like, man, couldn't people have seen the signs? And the answer is maybe, probably, sure. That's not the problem, though. At the beginning of the Odyssey, Zeus says this recklessness of mortals who that, that creates far more strife in their lives and, and, and pain and suffering than they normally would endure and and actually it was so it was so weird i think it was an nbc article i was reading about this one of the a boy who got paired with him for i think a science project said that he he was talking to this guy and he said he was just you know he was reckless it was it was actually the actual word that he used was reckless and i shared that with my students because the thing is 
Aegisthus, who, who was raised as a brother to Agamemnon, but is actually his cousin, and a really weird and interesting twist of fate for him. While Agamemnon is gone, Aegisthus, wishing to take Agamemnon's crown, seduces his wife, Clytemestra, which is an easy thing for him to do because Agamemnon has, has tricked Clytemestra into giving away their daughter, Iphigenia, as sacrifice, mm-hmm. uh, using the pretense that her daughter, her daughter was going to get married to Achilleus. So she goes from thinking that the greatest thing that could possibly happen was going to happen for her family to, the, you know, the worst possible nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> married yeah. daughter to sacrifice dead daughter. It's like, wow. And so, um, oh, wow, I'm losing my train going. That's what I get for these long tangents. No, you started um, from Aegisthus, I think. You, so, Aegisthus, yeah, yeah. So, basically, um, Clytemester has good reason to be angry at Agamemnon. And yeah. uh, so, it's easy to seduce her. And Aegisthus, well, he's warned explicitly by Hermes. Uh-huh. Do Mercury. not do yeah. this. Yeah. Do not do this. Yes, exactly. Mercury, his own capacity for judgment. And see, mm-hmm. that's something interesting about the Odyssey because you get not only influence from Hermes, but also from Athena and the scholarly. Uh, I don't know that there's consensus, but what I've read in the scholarship, which I think is uh, has elements of truth in it, is that Mercury or Hermes as trickster god is morphing into um, more Athena or truth god or uh, competence god going from that sort of initial foolish roguishness into the more defined wise uh, cunning divinity but but what I would add to that is that what Hermes does indicate is one's own capacity to think up an ingenious solution to a situation that wouldn't occur to others and he actually shows up multiple times in the Odyssey to do this he he frees Odysseus uh, working in conjunction with Zeus and Athena indicating that they're the three gods who are going to be helping out. They're the trinity of that text. Uh, He shows up to help Calypso and in fact says he doesn't much care for it there because there are no humans there. The social environment isn't there. It's not a real place. It's very clever by Homer. Um, And um, he also shows up to show Odysseus the uh, moly that he the black and white poplar that he can eat to keep Circe from turning him into a lustful or, or a pig, essentially. And um, so the all that goes to say is that why is Aegisthus different from Odysseus? Hermes went to right. both of them. Right. But it was the choice that Aegisthus made. And it was the choice, and the choice is, that Odysseus made. And even back then, 2,800 years ago, we knew that it came down to your choices. And so yeah. that's what I think. Well, when I tell my, when I talk to my students about this, that's what I think I'm going to convey to them. What the, what the weight of individual responsibility is. Because, yeah, I mean, I think free rights. Yeah, man, we're America. It's great here. We can do whatever we want within the rule of law. It's really awesome. And I live in California, which is one of the <laughs> best places on the on the planet. That's why I moved here. And um you live in you live in Washington, I'd say much okay. the same. Well, yeah, I mean, well that's some of the some of the narrative of this particular shooting is right, like it's paradise and it's um it's happened in paradise now. So uh which I found kind of interesting. Um 
because then it does it sort of skirts the uh, uh, biblical imagery of of the Garden of Eden. And well, uh, that's I think that's exactly good imagery because the real paradise that it's shaken is America, right? Oh, yeah. Because the idea is that we're the promised land, uh, the land of milk and honey, and that's largely been true throughout history. <laughs> which is why people have been willing to fight for and expand this place. Um, but the, the, the issue is that where's the snake coming from? Oh, well, and this is the issue that Peterson says that uh, Russia is going to have is that, that essentially the Soviets tried to keep Western ideals out, but then they generated spontaneously from within because humans have thoughts. And uh, <laughs> well, where's the snake coming here? It's one of our own. What does that tell us? We have malevolence within the walls as well. We are just as terrifying as the people outside the walls. And so we have to be very good to each other uh, yeah. in order to increase the trust we have with each other because that's the only guarantee we have against each other. I mean, the reason that we are one giant collective unit that works uh, uh, together well seems to be that we are all joined together by the same ideal or set of ideals. Yeah, if not that, even just like on the level of interpersonal relationships, if you don't have trust in some kind of ideal, maybe at least you have trust in some person that you can go and talk to, that you can, uh, you know, if you have a reckless idea, of uh, imagination of doing something, well, at least you can go and talk to someone who can tell you, you know, well, think about it, you know, and then slow you down and, and kind of be that voice um, when you know, that's not... precisely what I think that we've lost from sort of yeah. a Christian or even a Greco-Roman ideal of the divinity that exists within an individual, because then what protects the negotiations between any two individuals, and this is a, this is a point that Dante explicitly makes, is the divine, is God. Mm -hmm. The fact that when you agree with somebody, you're putting your trust in the God inside them, recognizing the God inside you and understanding that God would never betray God. And so you don't ever betray humans. And so if it looks like it is happening, if even if it looks that way, then you have this kind of paradigm of, of the, um, the sacrifice of the, of the son, right? Because mm. um, he's betrayed, right? But he's, he's willingly taking that suffering on. And so that's, that seems to be where the forgiveness element can can trump the um the rebellion or the destruction the destructive element uh and i yeah maybe it is a, a thing that that is um that has been you know treasured in in a kind of religious context for a long time but but i don't think it's only you know to be found there i think like you said uh it will arise sort of it will arise wherever people trust one another even if they don't you know trust the society at large if they have if they have a, a role model somewhere. And if you don't, right, if you don't have a father, if you don't have a father figure, well, then, you, yeah, you're in a really tough spot and it might take some kind of divine intervention to, to spare everyone your, your, your destructive uh, rage. Um, and that's, that's it's sort of like where, where the conversation, I think, would lead you, right? And so you sort of like you're left as a teacher or as a, as a fellow student, right? sort of looking around and saying, well, so like, am I really doing everything I can to be a good citizen in this school, to be a good, um, you know, role model from, from my peers and from my students? And who are those students? You know, it's, there's maybe a lot of them, but like, who are those students who don't seem to have somebody that they, 
connect with and and what can you do to to connect with them to try to you know have a uh, have a moment you know in the in the rush of the day to to slow down and and hear what's going on with them like what's just what's their situation what what are they thinking about you know particularly well, I know in general my yeah. my solution is to shine brighter and and to and to um be warmer you might mm-hmm. say um to be clearer in what I demand and what I what I can share and to be warmer in my expression of it um, and to become more articulated in my delivery of that which I'm delivering and to make sure the intention behind it is kind and the uh, the meaning behind the words is existence or or present in the words even even better. Mm-hmm and hopefully uniquely expressed so that they can learn to uniquely express themselves through just seeing somebody do it his own way. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really important that it be a a genuine feeling and not something, you know, uh, forced or even like, yeah, just sort of acknowledging the, 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 the rage, right? Like the rage is so, is so, um so central to this uh that's where the iliad begins right with with the rage of achilles and and that's something that everyone experiences as a kid and maybe as you grow up you you don't experience it quite the same way but it's always still there it can always break out any any time and so yeah just kind of like uh acknowledge you know i would say i would say to that to to the degree that rage has something to do with this sort of uh issue i would say that insofar as that is the very first word of the Iliad, of the very first you know, story of Western civilization, is the issue of integrating aggression into the personality, which is something on the social level we're having massive difficulties with right now, right? We're even mm-hmm. trying to drug aggression and law uh, and ban aggression out of existence by law, right? Yeah. We're making yeah. it so that people cannot... Uh, compete in an aggressive format, even though we're giving massively conflicting signals, is of course aggression uh, linked to combat is something that, uh, especially if one is good at expressing oneself in an aggressive uh, way, one can climb dominance hierarchies, particularly uh, uh, sports ones, which can lead to extremely high dominance hierarchy status in terms of wealth and money, which, which do seem to be the you know, wealth does te- seem to be the big indicator, um, even since back in the time of Agamemnon. Yeah, um, a big marker. Yeah, for a big marker standards. for sure. And perhaps we can make some claims about Odysseus markers and things like that. But uh, wealth's a pretty easy one. We give a lot of money to people, and that means that we value what they do. And one of the things we we do give money for is uh, success in sports, particularly football, baseball, and basketball. Uh, though not not exclusively, certainly soccer's coming up in America quite a bit, um, and so yeah, so, well, so aggressive aggression is like it's permitted and channeled in certain ways in our culture, but then in other in other spheres it's just like totally outlawed. So it seems like yeah, there's some kind of contradiction there. Well, yeah, uh, and I mean we were talking about uh, and Sarah and I were talking about how women can outperform men in high school because of their developmental, their quicker developmental progression and not having to deal with the increased levels of toxic testosterone in their, uh, 
in their systems. And also now, frankly, with the fact that their, um, their, their, their reproduction genes have turned on, they now have to deal with the fact that they feel how low in the dominance hierarchy they are. I think that's something that we haven't given enough credit to. Like all of a sudden, like 13, 14, it's like you're a guy at the bottom of a very tall mountain and you can feel the weight of it. I think that's what we joke about when we joke about high school being hard for young men. It's like you're at the bottom. And if, yeah. and if you're doing it, and if you're at the bottom in your high school, you're at the bottom of the bottom. And that doesn't feel good at all. Um, and so, well, that's the sort of thing that can, if not dealt with appropriately, breed resentment and say, you found yourself at the bottom of the bottom and you couldn't even behave appropriately enough to maintain your existence in that institution. Then you might imagine that you've become the sort of person that revels in the fact that you cannot behave correctly anywhere and has um, started to understand your story to be person who doesn't fit in anywhere and gets kicked out of every possible place. And so every possible place must hate you and be bad by nature and thus deserve to burn. Right. Right. Which is, which is a under in a, in a certain way understandable, but then there's better stories. There's better, there's um, precisely, precisely. Yeah. That's the issue. That's the Anakin Skywalker issue, right? It's like, Yes, you can do that, but it's not a capability issue. It's, it's a yeah. moral fabric issue. It's what do you build in doing that? What are you trying to accomplish? Because it's actually fairly obvious what this sort of thing is trying to accomplish, right? To destroy not the trust between those particular people or not even to just kill those particular people as awful as that is, but to destroy the trust that exists between the people who survive. Yeah, That's the goal. And so oh, yeah. Misery the, the idea, right? yeah, and the idea is hopefully people start yelling at each other for some pointless reason about this rather than you know, coming together and helping. And it's like, you know, people are already helping, right? The nurses and the doctors that worked on the victims, the first responders who came there to help with the situation and put the situation down and control the situation, the counselors that are helping uh, all the people that have grief, um, uh, you know, the, the people that come that have to clean up the schools. Uh, and have to clean the blood up from places. Those people are helping a lot because most people don't want to do that. And it's like people are coming out of the woodworks helping on the, these sorts of issues. Um, and I think that needs to be recognized just at the most fundamental levels. It's like people immediately go back to work trying to pick up the pieces after this sort of thing. It's like uh, you can understand how, how it is that we can come back to maintain a civilization after like a large-scale war, like World, world War II, just because it's like, uh, I think what we're supposed to take from this is things are supposed to get clearer, not yeah. more obscure, that you put things back together better. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you have to, you have to understand your vow, your values in a clearer way. It's like, Oh yeah, this is a trust issue. We need to trust each other more, not less yeah. because well, the less we trust each other, the more this sort of thing will happen. Right. Yeah. And that's, um, that's a great, I mean, I, I've not thought about quite on that level, but I think that's a great response maybe to, to the kind of uh, cynical viewpoint that looks at this and sort of throws up 
you know, throws up the hands and says, well, I don't even understand the cynical uh, viewpoint in that way, because it's like if the cynical viewpoint is actually cynical, it should expect this sort of thing and not care. Right. But the fact is, is that they would throw up their hands and say, oh, my gosh, look how this proves what I'm saying. It's like, no, it doesn't. You care. You can't even not care. What (laughs) What you're angry about is that somebody doesn't know the truth, which means you're angry at yourself for being so intellectually lazy that you figured out that, dang, we don't know everything. And then you said, well, we don't know everything. How can we know anything? So I'm just going to give up. It's the laziest way to think possible. And I I see how it develops because that's the level to which it develops. And it it often develops in high school. (laughs) Right. It's a kind of arrested development, if you like. Yeah, it's exactly arrested development. That's exactly right. It's like, that's the first thought you ever got to. And then the first counter thought you thought, man, thinking's tough. Because when you actually try and think, you run into obstacles. It's like, yeah, that's the point. Thinking is a sharpening stone. The more you do it and the better you get at it, the the larger the obstacles you can move for the people around you and in conjunction with them. Right. And, you know, we can build things even grander than the pyramids in terms of uh, abstraction and the things with our minds. I mean, I would say that's effectively what the Republic is. It's the... The work, it's a podcast that goes a whole night, right? right. Uh, we should try and do that some night. Maybe, maybe if we could get like, say, 100 listeners um, or something like that, we could do uh, and maybe like a, I don't know, like a symposium and do something like seven hours and uh, see if we can put together the ideal state in that amount of time. Because if we can't do it in seven hours of concentrated effort, whenever could we do it? frankly <laughs> right the yeah i think the republic and the symposium those are two kind of interesting uh interesting dialogues to juxtapose in that regard and isn't dante's whole story supposed to take just like a few days right yeah sort of yeah, it goes yeah. and it was an airy experience sharing a vision with uh-huh. people and may you know and i think more and more we're going to have to do that and you know i i think for the next 50 years or so which is about the amount of time I think I've got slotted for us to do th- to do this, um, God willing, is um, you know we need these fireside sh- chats. I think I think something interesting about dig- about media and digital media is that TV, as brain rotting as it was when we were growing up, uh, came on at the same time, and there weren't that many shows, and so we we shared a lot of the same shows and a lot of the same movies and doing things at the same time. But now. Now, now TV is a much more personalized experience, often personalized to somebody's laptop or even um, like um, tablet device. And so you find people not watching TV together, watching all sorts of different things, which means that people are sharing fewer and fewer stories together. Yeah. Fewer and fewer stories together at the same time, which I would argue is, well, you know, Peterson says, where, where is the book? Is it? in the pages is it between you and the pages is it in you is it in the people that have read the books and i think the same with any sort of story experience right like you're there with the crowd you're there with when you're at like the ballet or at uh the watching uh the nutcracker um or you're watching the symphony you're you're not simply there with the music you're there with the people playing the music you're there with the people listening to the music. And so it's a slightly more unique experience than the words generally used to give uh, 
than the words used to describe the experiences, which has led us, I think, to forget that the essence of the experience, not the description of it, is what's meaningful. And so coming together in order to share an experience, which I believe is the Heideggerian coming in order, coming together in order to gather idea, uh, right, right. Is, is what we're starting to lose. And so we have infinite fast food, but we can't sit down to dinner with each other. What do we miss? The information sharing aspect of meal, the ritual aspect. We made it ritual because that's when we all sit down and share information with each other, which bridges or creates more bridges between each other, which bolsters our relationships, which makes us stronger or more arc-like when tragedy hits. Mm -hmm. And so even though we can get a lot of food more conveniently, that was never the whole point of sharing. Yeah. And so I would say it's much the same with the TV. Like that's the T that's like family time. And TV was a cheap way of doing that instead of actually paying attention to each other, which would you know, be, you know, vastly superior. Um, <laughs> but maybe just asking too much, you know, after a day yeah. of shark and school. But now it's even less than that because oh, yeah, yeah. The same room, but two of you have headphones on watching their own tablets or cell phones or mobile video game system like a Nintendo DS uh, or multiple ones more likely depending right. on age. Um, and so uh, it's as if we are, really are becoming more solipsistic, but solipsistic precisely because uh, we richen and deepen our experience when we share stories and experiences together rather than just words yeah, I think the the whole the whole idea of a school, which seems to be kind of you know up in open to question now, right? It's like, well, there's probably some more efficient ways to like convey this material to people, right. maybe. But what do you give up with that, right? You give up the ritual element of it, the habitual thing of getting up and going to school and seeing your friends, you know, and seeing the teachers and. And there's, you know, maybe there's an inevitable movement that's that's kind of um, tending to isolate people. But if that's the case, if that's the march of the technology, then there can also be a corresponding and kind of, uh, you know, a movement uh, of of will and of diligence on the part of people to to reconnect in the face of that and, you know, recapture some of that um that connection uh, with, right. with so we should observe the problem and then address it, not just observe it and then marvel at the problem. Kind of washed away, right? Yeah, like the arc image there, you know. It's like, oh, uh, times really are terrible. It's like, well, okay, so what can we do about it? Uh, <laughs> building, yeah. Let's get. It's like, let's yeah, get, we got to get to work, right? Exactly. That's exactly the point of addressing these sorts of issues. People say, well, how could you? It's like, well, someone's got to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it's like, who is this putative other person who's going to think through all the issues of today? Like, right. nobody's thinking about anything of value. And so that's why, <laughs> that's why we actually have to come forward and start saying what we think about things because people, you know, potentially they'll at least say, well, God damn it, you're totally wrong about that. I totally think you're full of crap. And it's like, well, that's at least that's something. Maybe yeah. some people will also come out and say, man, you know, when I thought about, you know, I always thought about it that same way. And, or, 
you know, you made me think about that in a kind of different way. And it's like, well, that's the whole point of sharing some thoughts, I yeah. would imagine, yeah. or I hope, or I mean to do, or I think we mean to do. Yeah, it's well, it's a matter of um, of maybe just kind of like like we were saying the other night, like kind of finding that that place where where whatever takes the place of the of the old market or the old uh, yes. agora, you know, and um, and if it is uh, if it is a matter of kind of making a bigger maybe it is a matter of getting a bigger kind of event together, kind of leveraging some existing institutions yes. to start, you know, to start getting a, a bigger um, group of people to, to, to cooperate on something like that. And, uh, you know, so like there's um, like I mentioned the schools, you know, uh, which I think this is a, a podcast, which is appropriate for, you know, pretty much anyone who's um patient enough to to interact with it listen through it like it's it's on it's on a level that i think people can access but but i think it's a cool idea we you're talking about maybe doing some about um you know movies and uh, you mentioned harry potter and uh, yes yeah so if that if that takes place i think that also would be a really good way to kind of um uh pitch the ideas in, at a level and in an arena where people are, are kind of already, you know, interested in things and, and might spark some, some further ideas. So well, that's something I'm deeply interested in doing because something Peterson brought up uh, yesterday uh, in just one of his many, many YouTube videos was he was being asked um, he, uh, by Rogan. I, th- I believe this is Joe Rogan podcast 1070. Actually, I can confirm that that's true. Um mm-hmm. And Rogan was like, oh, well, you know, you're, you're gone from teaching. You have a sabbatical right now. And Peterson gives an explanation explaining that it was going to be a year in the future, but it was better to take it this year because of all the controversies. But he should be coming back in January. But he, he, he vacillated on that. He said, well, you know, according to plan. And Rogan pushes him on that. And he says, well, what do you mean? Uh, and Peterson says, well, you know, I can only just, you know, do the 25 things I have to do in a day and go one day at a time because who knows what's going to happen. A very Petersonian answer. And, um, but he also said, well, you know, the thing is, I've already videotaped several years, three years, uh, occasionally uh, almost four with his personality lectures. He's like, I've taught those classes and video exists of those classes now. He's like, I just did the Bible. And his idea seems to be, well, since we can videotape our lectures, we can go through a course one time and then move on to new courses. And that's not to say that going through courses multiple times doesn't have infinite value. It certainly does. And it is a different course every time you go through a course, for sure. And definitely when you listen to his courses, you know that's true. He's thinking through new thoughts all the time while coming to similar patterns. And I think it's a very similar idea to why you go to the same rock, the same musician's concert in different places or at different times, right? Like it's going to be the same but different. And so it's going to be the same enough to where you like it, but different enough to where it's interesting. Yeah, And that's a cool thing about teaching courses multiple times. That said, I'm very interested in doing the same sort of thing on bringing my mind to bear on new topics, on new texts, on putting out. I mean, I would love to put out a lecture course on, say, every single text in the traditional great books canon is defined by, say, Mortimer Adler or even using, say, uh, a great books text list, like a seminar list from, say, a St. John's. 
or something sure. like that. Um, I just, I don't know. I see that as a, as an activity of that could take infinite time that also has potential, potentially infinite value, uh, not only as a product produced, but as in a, a, sh a sharpening stone in, in that you are producing yourself against the greatest works and the greatest thoughts ever to have been thunk, and you're attempting to think them up and distill them down uh, yourself, um, which you know Emerson says that's the whole point of reading, so yeah. you can have your own thoughts. And I would say that is literally the point of books, that thoughts that have been come to through strenuous effort and time and uh, crazy ac acquisitive strategies like strategies like going down to Africa, for instance, and learning everything, uh, while you're, say, like a 19th century British explorer about, say, rhinos, it's like, yeah, I'll read a book about that. That's pretty cool. That was hard to get knowledge. That was hard to get information, you know? <laughs> and I, all right, I no, have to do is read. Well, yeah, it's like to the question about where is the book, in some sense, the book is everywhere. It's in the past. It's in the future even too, right? It's like it's uh, this yeah, kind of – Yeah, because this value may be unrealized still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's this kind of mark, mark, um, or like port, port key. Is that the word? Yes. Uh, the yes, thing yes, that, yes. The thing that you touch that takes you somewhere else, and that's that's sort of. Yes. Um, it's kind of a. It's no wonder that we think about you know wizards with their it's books. A simple, right? Yeah. right? Yes, yeah. and you know that's interesting because I, <laughs> I I do do a lot of thinking about Hogwarts, seeing as I am you know a, a high school teacher and at a place <laughs> that actually has a, a four house system. Oh, I'm cool. head of Excelsior, which is. Gryffindor because we are the we are red and gold we have a lion mascot which we call an excelsion but it's very much like a lion and it uh <laughs> and uh we we represent the twin the twin swords of courage and kindness nice and so so yeah so thinking about uh port keys a lot and it's it's interesting the the wand is that from which the spells come or you used to cast magic and well to spell alan watts makes this point to spell is to cast a spell on someone. We do that by means of speaking. Yeah. In fact, I think those skilled in prestidigitation, sleight of hand, um, uh, magicians will say that's precisely what's happening is that people come for the story. They want to be fooled, they say. And it's not so much that you want to be fooled so much as you want to be entertained. And so you'll listen to them. You will grant them their conceits. You will follow what it is they wish for you to follow in order to get the maximal story experience. And so you don't need to humiliate yourself through saying you wish to be fooled. It's like, no, 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 no. See, because these people are getting exactly what they want, a meaningful experience they pay money for. It's like, right. yes, they, they've got it. They're doing the right thing. You need to perform, though. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, it, it's interesting because we like to be guided by somebody who sees the meaning behind a story. And I think that's the idea of the Wizard of, the Oz, of Oz, right? That the sorcerer at, uh, behind the, the curtain is the one who's running the whole myth of Oz, and he happens to be just a person. Yeah. And so, again, we come down to the idea, I think, of personal autonomy, of personal choice. It's like, what do you want to represent in the world, and it could be something glorious like Oz, or it could be something inglorious like, you know, the witch, um, who's trying to destroy everything and get those ruby red slippers. I haven't thought much through uh, the Wizard of Oz and what all the imagery means, though I do often mention to the students when we're teaching them about the Lotus Eaters, 
uh, poppies and the fact that scholars do believe that Lotus may have been some sort of opiate certainly has the sort of characteristic addiction uh, or, or mental addict, mentally addictive properties. The yeah. men have to get tied up to keep from jumping back into the stream. Yeah, no, it's well. So the the thing about the the wizard, right? The Wizard of Oz is yeah right. that he he he's he's been um, creating this kind of grandiose uh, story. Um, and then is is revealed to be just a just a little a little guy behind the curtain, right? Right. And, and that's in some way uh, kind of the danger too, right? Like yes. Now I'm seeing. Now I'm seeing. It's a pandemonium sort of thing, yeah. like what Lucifer does: refusal to serve in the real world. And so, yeah, the the idea I think might be something like the measure to which you live out your dreams. Your dreams don't need to inflate you by. And so the the less and less you live out your dreams, the more and more you have to dream your life away. And so your dreams get bigger and bigger while you get smaller and smaller. Whereas the 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 better life is the one where you become your dreams, where your dreams help to push you into the zone of proximal development and you further inscribe yourself, uh, further define yourself into a unique and uh, uh, uniquely competent individual with a unique experience an embodiment of uh, the soul within the world, you might say, or the conscious experience within the world. That's, that's what I like about the idea of doing these um, maybe smaller series or just like even one-off discussions of, of some popular books and movies and things. Yes. Is that they sort of act as these kind of uh, experiments within which you can see some Lightning things about, th about the... Um, the integration of a personality, right? And yes. about the, the elements of, of dream and reality that they're sort of revealing to you that they are, you know, to you. And or the aggression. That's something we should see. We should see the fact that the aggression of the modern American is not integrated. That should come through in our movies at that hypothesis. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Correct. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like, um, if that's, if that's an element of wish fulfillment, then, there's a lot of unfulfilled aggressive wishes out there. Um, and I think distinguishing between, re between reality and fiction is or fantasy is hugely important, right? Like, sure. Um, <laughs> that well, and also understanding their prop, their properly informative role. It's like, we are biological entities. We don't produce nothing for no reason. Um, mm -hmm. You know, our, our art comes from somewhere, comes from our right brain effectively, right? It's our effect. It's our first order approximation of what's happening in reality. And so the poets and the artists they and the musicians, they pump out some weird seemingly nonsense like images on a palette or some weird words strung together that sound good that we like to dance to or like some crazy poetry that we're like, yeah, I like listening to this, but I have no clue what it means. It's like, well, why do you like to dance to this? Why do you like how it sounds? Why do you like this? It's like, Something in you is responding to it, mostly yeah. your right brain, because you'll generate imaginary Im images when you're listening to music or to poetry, right? Or even a very good speaker, you'll even stop listening to them, and you'll just sort of let the words wash over you, and imagine you're in the crowd during like a great speech, <laughs> which is sort of funny. Um, but um, what you're supposed to do with that is interpret the art, because yeah. 
it's something thrown out there by the brain, by part of the brain that is not as articulate as the left part. So the right part with its, you know, sort of uh, imaginary images, uh, which can even lead to, say, visions if somebody is, say, under a hallucinatory experience, uh, as Peterson suggests, um, through your feelings and emotions, which, of course, you don't control those. And if anybody's like, don't be angry, you understand exactly how little that helps. Um, <laughs> like, don't be annoyed right now. Don't be annoyed with this bad advice I'm giving you right now. Um, <laughs> and um, so, and also with dreams. And it's like, yeah. why, we can't just ignore the fact that all of these things are major parts of our lives that we experience. In the, I mean, I dream almost every night. Mm -hmm. And it's just, that is a fact of existence. Why does it happen? It's like, oh, here's why it happens. That's your right brain sending you data that it has interpreted in its first order approximation, approximating way, which your left hemisphere, the, the, this hemisphere of order as opposed to chaos, needs to sort through in its articulated manner. How does it sort through in an articulated manner? It has to talk about it. It has to describe it. This is why therapy works. This is why seminar works like therapy, and this is why confession works for people and just having good friends around them, right? Then you get to articulate what it is you've experienced and what you've felt, and you can uh, seek, uh, you can be like an etiologist. You can, you can seek the cause of the thing when you articulate it and then remove the anomaly. So it's like, why do I always feel bad after I talk to this person? Well, you talk to somebody else, say we talk to somebody who's a great conversationalist like you, and you're like, Oh, it turns out they're actually really negative and they put you down uh, 30 times every time you talk to them. It's like, yeah. oh, well, uh, now you understand. And now you can actually pattern behavior in order to limit that person's effect on you so that you don't experience that negative effect anymore. And it's like, now you have a strategy instead of just some uh, uh, vague uh, and anomalous and negative feeling that you kind of uh, try to ignore but which controls your interactions and uh, makes you feel weak and incompetent. The uh, yeah, exactly. The the sense of something becomes concrete and therefore uh, something you can like act on or whatever. But yeah, but that's like expecto patronum, <laughs> dementor. You like produce this defined image in, yeah. in you produce a defined image of light in order to understand just how vague the thing was that was accosting you and therefore define the problem so that you can solve the problem expecto patronum. But, but what I would, what I would point out, I guess, is that I always like to sort of re um, reinstantiate as well. The, the value of the, of the amorphous of the felt insofar as it's the thing that sort of connects you to other people in the first place, right? Like, you sure. can connect to That's people. Nature. Yeah, yeah. You can connect to people on a on a logical and kind of discourse level, left brain level. But you definitely also do connect to people through the music or through the art or through you know those kind of experiences. Um, well, that's the feeling of the connection. I would say, like without that, there's nothing to articulate for the left yeah. brain, right? Yeah. Like I think you just through left brain and like you even see this in movies and things when say like say the archetypal. A uh, girl who's finding herself and therefore her soulmate is talking to her best friend who's slightly less together than she is, but also slightly prettier. So she dates more. So she's doing better and worse. So they're good friends. Um, she, uh, she 
she's describing some guy to this girl and then all of a sudden realizes in describing that she loves him. She's uh-huh. like, how did I come to this? It's like, well, you've been acting as if you did this entire time, right? You've been behaving in this way and you've been imagining him in a certain way too. Perhaps as Prince Charming or even having thoughts of say marriage or children or something like that. But only in addressing those thoughts and those images, those feelings and those actions you've been taking and expressing them to another person, does it start to click to the connections between them, uh, suggest themselves so that you can articulate them. You're like, oh my gosh, like marriage thoughts plus uh, going on like dumb cruises plus like really liking this person so much. It's like, boom, that equals, I love this person um, or something like that. So yeah, yeah, certainly the left brain is by no, <laughs> it is by no means the most important aspect of you. It is uh, at least from, well, interesting from a biological level, it's, it's both the most and the least important part of you. So say if you're left prefrontal cortex, it's damaged, or at least in, in cats, they've taken them out. They become hyper-exploratory, but they just can't learn new things. And so you, you can survive probably pretty, pretty well without an actual consciousness. And in fact, it seems that your consciousness sort of inhibits you from taking all information in, which is another comment made about Peterson about the likely effects of, say, um, psychedelics, um, though he doesn't, he does not, he does not, what is it that he says? He, he does not say, that he, I'm, I'm trying to use the wrong word, prohibits, but it's not that. He doesn't approve. There we go. He doesn't endorse it, right? It's not he doesn't saying, endorse. There we go. But, but he does mention the fact that that's probably what happens with something like lysergic acid, that um, the inhibitory structure of consciousness sort of fades away. And so the massive amounts of information that are always underlying our experience that, say, perhaps a baby sees – yeah. or an animal, um, well, those, whatever inhibits the fact that we can't constantly see all that we don't see starts to disappear, and that's overwhelming. And in yeah. fact, supposedly that's what happens with trauma, right? That one's worldview is shocked so tremendously by a direct action, an action that seems to reach all the way down to hell, right? Because say you're an action... You're, you're, you're somebody from a good Christian family in Iowa who's never seen anything terrible happen and has only ever seen, you know, nice, good, wholesome things happen and has only ever watched movies where that sort of thing happened. And you're all of a sudden doing the worst thing possible to some small villager. And then, boom, why would you develop PTSD? Well, because not only would you have seen something evil happen in the world, you would have seen yourself perpetuate. And this isn't my example, actually. There's another one from... Peterson. Um, and it's like, what does that do? Well, that creates a hole in your picture of reality and your picture and therefore your picture of yourself and who you are and therefore what you're striving towards because you no longer know who you are. And so you don't know what you're supposed to do because you don't know where it is you're supposed to go or where you belong. And so you have to restructure where that hole, where that hole was. Um, you have to, completely rewrite the story with now the presence of an actor in it, which was not present before. And that actor is a giant force, the dark side, right? Voldemort evil comes through in all our movies, our biggest stories. Um, Yeah, no, I think this is, well, I think you can probably, probably all movies. I would agree. um, But definitely 
definitely within ones that are are sort of trying to do something a little bit deeper than just you know uh, uh, you know just make a little bit of money and sort of like move on to the next thing. But sure, the major uh, epics. Yeah, anything with a with a slight pretension to to quality, <laughs> probably. Well, yeah, and, and that people will stand outside of for days and pay in yeah. mass hundreds of millions of dollars, not only to make but then to go watch. It's like that's a phenomenon yeah. that we have never seen ever in the world. People spending that much money on anything, and so, I mean. And it's for stories. And we're developing, we're actually driving the technological field in order to produce these stories in better and better ways. Yes. And um, so it, there is a thing, there is a thing there that is connecting people in a, in a really humongous way, right? Even as yes. other smaller ways might get eroded um, and need to be kind of buttressed. But yeah, yeah. No, so I think, I think getting, getting a chance to, to do some of these um, side stories and, and how they, touch on elements of personality that still are seeking to be integrated or however you want to characterize it. Yeah. I think that would be really, really interesting to. Yeah. And you know, something I wanted to piggyback on that I do want to do, and I definitely want to do the side quest ones is something I thought would be interesting for our listeners would be, I know that you had a special connection to earthbound growing up uh, or otherwise known as motherhood and the character of Ness. And I never, got through that that movie but i did uh, or that that video game but Super i remember you speaking so highly of it i definitely need to and um you know maybe maybe if we can get down and uh do this in person one of these times we can uh actually maybe we can play through earth found or something oh, like that so fun. but um but uh i i first learned about that through super smash Bros. and i thought it was very interesting i read some literature on earth found especially mother two or mother three uh, and the intentions behind the writer of that game where he said he wanted to betray the uh, the player. But I, I was a big Final Fantasy VII fan growing up, and particularly I liked the character of Sephiroth, and I thought it might be interesting to sort of talk about our particular childhoods just a little bit, bit and how, say, our own, our own lives might have reflected uh, the games that we liked and the characters that we found most provocative within them and how that made it, may have set the trajectory of our lives because... Well, you know, I didn't get to the Iliad until I was 20, 21. I didn't have it growing up. Yeah. And so I didn't have I didn't have the great characters from the Western tradition in the same way that uh, some people used to. I wouldn't say most people have now. Um, so for me, a, a lot of the major characters came from novels um, and and sports heroes and heroes of culture, but also from video games. Oh, yeah, and, absolutely. Um, they, they're, they were such a huge part of, you know, growing up in the nineties, those, those, uh, those, um, that, that era of, uh, video games, those RPGs for some people maybe, but I mean, just in general, playing games with your friends, getting together and playing Mario Kart or whatever, like that was the thing to do. So, yeah, yeah you I think- know, I can, I can remember a lot of my values about friendship came from Final Fantasy eight, you know, and to this day and you know i would say that i I, you know i've read aristotle now i've read cicero i've read dante on friendship i've read the great thinkers and it's beautiful all that they have to say but the same they say much better what is also said by these (laughs) these video games that help to define our generation or or, you know the, the stories that we would wish to live out as a generation and i think 
it'll be an interesting call to our generation to remind them of the sort of games that we played growing up and of the sort of aims that we had within those games. And they were certainly noble ones. And so I think rather than being the resentful generation, which we've often been labeled as with good reason, mm-hmm. we have good, we have also a good chance to set our aims higher to be a noble generation instead. Yeah, no, I think that's a good, I think that's a good bookend to where the, the conversation started here today. And uh, certainly one that I'm looking forward to continuing another time. Yeah. Um, and we, we can set up, uh, we can set up the particular say shows or movies or short stories or parts of stories we want to go through. I really love the idea you're coming up with here. Um, um, laying out the idea of, being a little more topical with some of the things we talk about in order to root some of our creative reflections. And, um, and also just to give as a model for teachers who are doing seminars and yeah. starting conversations for the first time, um, just to sort of show them how a creative conversation can go. So we're both pretty creative in terms of temperament, in terms of the big five factor analysis. And so I think it's a little easier for us to get going than it would be for say just anybody because so an aspect of creative thinking is lateral thinking, which means we produce lots of to any idea. And so we sort of have a lot of different directions we can go from the get-go. And we're pretty, we're pretty good at doing that because, well, we, you know, that's part of our professional training, right? St. Exactly. John's. And then, um, and then, you know, how we've, you know, conducted ourselves for the past several years. So not, not something that happens overnight, but something that can be trained and like, like with all skills and can be improved upon. And so I, I would hope that other teachers feel confident enough to engage in these sorts of discussions, not only with each other, but also with their students. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's amazing because you're not at a certain point, you, you know, you are training them and helping them get started, but, but then there's great moments where this, the conversation just takes off and it's like, you know, time yes. flies and it's just wonderful. So I think it's by far the most fun and most beneficial way to way to teach um, any age group, really. But um, high yeah, praise, high praise. For, for kids who never have, like me, growing up, I very rarely got to, you know, do any discussion type things in, in classes. But um, uh, for for kids to get a chance to do that kind of a uh, learning at a younger age, I think is yeah, just a really wonderful opportunity here. So, yeah, and I well, think. I would say too that you know if if people are listening and have things they want to talk about, you know, just like call in and and share them and uh, suggest. suggest and yeah, yeah, actually, could I ask? Uh, let me ask you about that really quickly, and and we can end with that. Uh, how how you called in before you were ever invited onto the show? Could you just quickly uh, explain how to do that? Oh yeah. Okay. So if I recall, there's a little there's a little button down there um, after the show's over. It sort of gives you a little button that you can push to call in, and when, on the anchor app. Yeah, on the on the anchor app. Yes, yes. And so when you do, you have to like hold the phone up to your ear, and then there will be a little sound that lets you know that it's recording. The so Yeah, it's like that exactly. And you you start to talk, and then you kind of like figure out what you're saying, and then as soon as you do that, you'll hear a sound that lets you know that the the thing is gonna stop recording. <laughs> <laughs> And so it, it chops up your your call into these very small um, kind of units. And then I think when on your end, I think you get to hear those units and sort of stitch them back together again somehow. But, um, yes. but to the person calling in, just so you know, like you've got a kind of limited time and then you can 
you know, start again and do, do the, do the next part of your call, but you just have I to think you might have five minutes. I think yeah. how it works is that when I'm just giving my podcasts independently, uh, I can go for five minutes and then I have to take a pause. And so I I'll often pause every few minutes or so, which is sometimes why there are some inelegant cuts in there. And I gather uh, my thoughts in order to think something through and then I'm, I'm back. Poof. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, I think ultimately, like, especially talking about movies or video games, things that have a strong visual component, it seems to me that YouTube is really the way to go. So that's, I think making videos of those kind of things will be, will be more fun and more, more yeah. interesting. Well, I'm looking forward to doing that with you. And I just got a new MacBook and I have a new display monitor behind it to do some more serious audio visual work. And um, well, and I'm just so appreciative to have had the, this opportunity with you so far, Wes, five conversations, and that's uh, that's an infinite amount more than the zero we had done before this. <laughs> right, right. It's it's a I think a strong, um, a strong beginning. But like you say, if there's fifty years worth of things that we're going to talk about yet, then we're just scratching the surface here. So yeah, yeah. And I guess we're going to have to keep reading and learning new things and doing new things so we can stay interesting to people. Oh man, yeah. Well, well. Thank you for uh, kind of being the the impetus to, to get this whole thing started. And I look forward to seeing where it goes from here. Yeah. Yeah. Let's mount the troops and let's storm Troy. <laughs> right All right. Till next time. Thank you very much. This has been the Alexander Schmidt podcast episode zero three, three. Thank you to Mr. West chance and we'll have a great day. All right. Thank you.